I'm going to pray. Uh, and the reason I want to pray is because I feel like I have the privilege this morning to be like a third party to the pastor and the people. Um, so I want to pray for the pastors and I want to pray for the people. Um, forgive me if it's presumptuous, but I just want to minister to them. And I say this because compassionately and lovingly, I know exactly, though not the specifics of this week, his last couple weeks, principally what he's talking about. Uh, having been a ministry for 10 years in Los Angeles and 10 years in Indianapolis and now back here, um, I know what it's like to feel even something as difficult as like, hey, we want to be on point so our people have courage and feel like this mission is moving forward. And if we show any sign of weakness, then that might cause our people to feel a sense of hesitancy, like, are we okay? Is something wrong? And what that does is it creates a reluctance to show any vulnerability. Um, and what you saw this morning is an example. I would say he led by example in showing vulnerability, right? Because that's a challenge even just with our own friendships. How are you? Fine. Good. Shout out. And we ask for prayer. We ask for prayer for people who are not in the room, right? And if we do ask for prayer for people in the room, it's like knees, ankles, and elbows prayer, i.e. physical prayer. Nothing in my heart. My heart's good. And I'm saying one of your pastors just led by example. And I want to pray for him. I love Pastor Mucci's a friend, his wife Diamond, your other leaders, and all of you. So if I can, just take a minute and pray. Can I do that? Okay. Oh, Father, it is so sweet to be in Christ, your son. Because together we're family. Though introductions are being made, though names are being learned, we're brothers and sisters adopted into the same family. Having been orphans, we're now home. And so on behalf of each other, we knock on your door as our Heavenly Father, and we say, Father, would you hear us? Would you see us? Would you, as a display of your power and the keeping of your promises, would you please minister? Would you please care? Lord, I pray that this morning for my brother Brian. Lord, I, I pray for you to minister in a way that is beyond mere human words. Jesus, in your absence, you said one would come that would minister. Holy Spirit, that's you. You are the comforter. God, we, we hate to admit it, but it is in our weakness that we see your strength. Would you show yourself to be strong in Brian's weakness, in Mucci's weakness, and the other leader's weakness? Would you draw them to you that the fruit of this sometimes dark season is, is intimacy with you? That there is a Joshua-like spirit that says, choose this day whom you will serve, but as for me and my house, as, as for us and our church, we will serve the Lord. God, ministry is, in some regards, a labor of love, and a ministry of death. Death of identity. Death of reputation. Death of all that you humanly would love to see and instead surrendering all that we have to you. Like Abraham who takes the one thing you've given him and is asked by you to then bring it to the altar. Just wondering if you've made a mistake in that request. Father, I pray for Brian. I pray for Moochie.
I pray, Lord, for my brothers and sisters here at Brook. May it be a time of sweet ministry. Exceedingly, abundantly, beyond anything we could ever ask or think. Lord, would you do this as a display of the power of the gospel that's more than just said, the power of it is seen in this church's life between the leaders and their people. In Jesus' name, amen. Your brother. Amen. All right. I'm going to trip over this. I'm going to put this here. Um, I ap- apologize in advance for some of you who are not used to uh, you know, me being so close, Moochie, you know, he is sophisticated. I'm not. I'm like a Shamu preacher. So I'm like all up in your business. This is a splash zone. So you should be aware of that right here. I hope they gave you guys parkas because uh, this first couple rows is where you might get wet. So just want to warn you about that ahead of time. Um, I am glad to be here with you. Um, I need to start my watch or I will be here for two hours. Um, so uh, quick context and who's talking to you, Eric Bancroft, married to the fabulous Danelle Bancroft. One day you might get a selfie taken with her. It'll be beautiful. Uh, she's not able to make it this morning. My wife was born and raised in Miami. She's an OG. Her family goes back to the 1800s before the founding of the city. Um, I'm just kind of married to Danelle. It's kind of like my claim to fame. Um, I moved, kind of lived all over the country, Minnesota, Georgia, Colorado, South Carolina. I moved down here and I was 19 with my family. Soon after I got moved out, I got kicked out. So I've been living on my own since I was down here for a while. We reconciled. Don't worry. That's to kind of give you a spoiler. Everything's good there with my family. Um, my wife and I met and uh, married here in South Florida. Uh, I went to college in Miami. Um, I did not know what I wanted to do. Maybe this is some of your story. I went to uh, four universities, had five colleges. Why get college done in four years when you can get it done in seven? That was kind of my lay- layaway plan because um, I just love going to school. Apparently, that's what was my practice. So um, if you went to FIU, anybody FIU? Yeah, baby. Yeah, that was me for a time. I uh, did that. I've checked every kind of box in the South Florida schools. Uh, finally graduated from Trinity, South Florida campus. They used to meet at Central Baptist Church. It's now the downtown campus of Christ Fellowship uh, that they're now redoing. Uh, my wife and I uh, married in 96. She was young. She was 20. I was 23. Uh, and then in 98, we moved to Los Angeles for me to go to seminary at the Master Seminary. And then, uh, yeah, we got some L.A. love there. Appreciate that. We'll get together later. We'll go for lunch or something. So um, so I uh, uh, went to school at the Master Seminary, served on staff at Grace Community Church for 10 years. Uh, and, then in 19, uh, and then in 2008, moved to Indianapolis to be a senior pastor of a hot mess church. That wasn't their name. That was my nickname for them. Um, they're 111 years old when I got there, kind of a crazy church. Um, if you don't do this, I count this as success already this morning. When I would get up to preach, which I've just done already, though I haven't gotten to the sermon yet, they would get up and walk out. They were boycotting me every Sunday. It was a beautiful hot mess. I told you, I, I didn't lie when I said hot mess. So there's about 500 people, about 50 to 100 of them would get up and walk out to kind of just boycott. They did not like me. Um, and so this would happen for about six months, and uh, they were an equal opportunity protester. It wasn't just me. Um, John McCarthy came and did my installation, and they boycotted him. So, you know, good reception. We're good on hospitality like that. Um, and then things finally calmed down after about five years. Members, crazy things, started getting saved. It's crazy. I know that actually happens. Members of churches are actually not even Christians. It happens. It's crazy. And uh, God started to change it. 
And then we did that work for 10 years and loved and thought I'd be there forever and have some good godly friends who said, hey, Eric, what if God wants you to do something insane and step down, turn the church over to one of your associate pastors and uh, go do another revitalization or church plant? I said, that's crazy because I believe in preach, pray, love, and stay. Let's go. And, um, or I should say, let's stay. And, um, but prayed about it with my wife and talked about what if we move back to South Florida to Miami uh, to plant a church? And her response was, no, you're insane. Um, that's not what God's will for our life is, which I also said I would never be a pastor. She said she'd never move back to Miami. So you see how well we're doing telling God what to do with our lives. Um, I don't recommend you do that to the Lord. Uh, now she's saying things like, I will never live in a penthouse. I would never have a maid. Um, and I said, I said, babe, I don't think it works way at the Lord, but you're welcome to try it. I, just, I think he's kind of like one step ahead of you. Uh, but whatever, it is what it is. So we moved down here in 2018, uh, about a little over a year and a half ago, and um, got connected to a church. Our kind of sending church here in South Florida was PRC, Providence Road Church, down in the kind of Coral Gables area. Pastor Jose Abea, Alex Gomez, Jesse Crowley. Uh, Pastor Alex and I went to college together 20-something years ago. So it was like we're hooking back up. It was great relationship and friendship. In fact, in 2017 is when I met your pastor, Muchi. I had a great connection, just like-minded, loved the Lord. We have some similar friendships from back in Atlanta. And uh, so it's just sweet to know it's coming back into a city after 20 years of making some sweet connections and began to pray for you guys, just loving and thankful for the work of the gospel. Uh, of the 3 million or so in Miami, only 5% of us in this city have any relationship to a gospel preaching church. Uh, so I just pray for the flourishing of every gospel preaching church in the city of Miami and uh, thankful when they're led by God leaders like Brian and Moochie and others. So uh, thankful for you. So then in January of this past year, uh, we kicked it off. And um, so we're still like in the nursery. Uh, you can come tap in the glass and see us. We're just this young infant church. Uh, we meet in Miami Shores. We're Sunday nights. We found a church to rent to us um, over in Miami Shores. And so we meet there on Sunday nights at five o'clock and uh, it's sweet. I have three sons, 19 and two 16-year-olds. They're not twins. I know you're asking, are they twins? My youngest of the two 16-year-olds is born in Ethiopia. We adopted him when he was six. So there's three teenage boys. I have no clue on how to raise daughters, so do not come to me for any Q&A on that. Um, but if you have questions on boys, I can just say what not to do. That's all the counsel I've got for you. So I'm excited to get into it this morning. Um, we've already called some audibles, which I think is the Lord's prompting, and I want to be sensitive to that. I also want to serve you well and serve your pastor, Moochie, well, uh, and his wife, Diamond, and just, again, thankful for their invitations. Um, our text already in Philippians has got me excited, thinking about what's coming up for us this morning. Um, as Diamond said, man, this past week has been crazy hot. Uh, in fact, uh, the friends who came down from Hibernia, from uh, Fleming Island up in Jacksonville, we were working outside uh, yesterday, and uh, my wife's like, babe, they're going to call you Pharaoh. Um, you just make them work outside in this heat. I'm like, hey, for Jesus, you know what? It's do this thing. So it's crazy hot. But it reminds me, though, of a story I one time heard of a guy who was in a similar type of situation in a very hot place, lost on, on a trek where he had lost all sense of bearings of where he was and where he needed to be. All he knew was this. He had no food. He had no shelter. And here's what's even worse. He had no water. You can imagine what it'd be like in a South Florida day to just go for days on end with none of the above. You would be destroyed. 
But that's exactly the condition he's in. And surprisingly, as he found himself in this condition, he came across an old dilapidated building where there was in this area kind of a, a, kind of a lean-to structure. The roof was missing, but some of the walls were up, and so he crawled over to the building, and he found some shade sitting there, resting, wondering if this was the end. He looked out in front of him, and he found an old well with a pump on top. You know, those old kind of old-school prime-the-pump, pump it, he crawled over, went to the pump, pumped it for some water, and nothing happened. Went back to the wall, sat up there, and just thought, man, I think this might be it. I'm going to be done. And so what ended up happening was he found, kind of sitting, had almost half buried in the ground, a little jug, and he crawled over to it, pulled the jug fully out of the ground, found it on the neck of the bottle of the jug, a little note, and it said, you have to pour all of the contents into the pump to prime it. And it said, P.S., make sure to fill the jug back up when you're done. Popped the top, looked inside, poured a little bit out, not knowing what liquid was inside. Turns out it was water. Oh, man, this is exactly what he had wanted. But here's the problem. He did not know how long the water had been sitting in that jug for. Putrid and rancid and not something cold and fresh, but nevertheless, it was water it did tell him to pour the water into the contents of this pump, but how old were these instructions? The bottle looked dated, the instructions had already been smeared a bit, and he wondered just how long it had been there, and if these instructions were still true, if not outdated and irrelevant. He had to make a choice. Drink the water, the rancid as it is, maybe even getting sick from it, spending his final hours with exasperating dehydration and sickness, or trust the instructions and pour it in the pump. He did what some of us might consider to be insane. He crawled over to the pump, poured the water into the pump to prime it and began as hard as he could with as little energy as he had to actually prime the pump to get any water to come out. And nothing happened. This is it. I've come here to die. Tried it again and to his surprise something came out but it was nothing you and I would want to drink nor him either. It was like just a sludge that came out. Kept pumping it, kept pumping into surprise. The sludge ran a little clear until finally it was clean, cold water. And he began to drink and drink. And even as he was drinking in the moment, in the spot, he found his energy returning back to his body where he could feel his strength returning to him once again. After he drank as much as he could, feeling as full as he was, he took the pump and he remembered the instructions and he filled up the jug. Put the top back on. And he grabbed a note, finding some little charcoal over to the side. And he wrote on the bottom of the note, it really works. But you have to pour it all out before you can expect to get anything back. Therein lies the theme for our message this morning. Believe me, it really works. You have to pour it all out before you can expect to get anything back. Your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers think you are following outdated, old, and no longer relevant instructions by giving your life to this thing, the Bible. But these instructions say, come to the cross and give everything out. Surrender your life to Jesus. And while the world will call you a fool, 
you will finally, for the first time in your life, truly live. That's exactly what Paul is teaching in our text in Philippians this morning. Philippians chapter 1. We read the text together a few minutes ago and have already had it kind of set before us. One of the first jobs I had in South Florida, and I had quite a few, uh, was working at Sports Authority at the Sawgrass Mills Mall. That is a giant mall if you've never been there. In the shape of an alligator if you did not know that. And you can't quite figure out where you are in this thing. And so when you walk in, what is usually one of the first things people do? They go look for a map, right? Like, okay, I want this store. Did I park close enough to it? You're like, oh, stink. I'm like super far. And I got a judgment call. Do I like walk back out into the parking lot, get in my car and like find this other big store to park and walk there? Or do I commit myself to walk through it? And the truth is all the vendors are like, I hope they walk. I hope they walk because they're walking by all the stores they didn't want to see. But now that they see it, they might want to buy. Well, let me give you a bit of a navigational map this morning in the middle of Philippians. We're in a big book, four chapters. We're only going to be in a few section of verses, and I want to make sure you have a navigational map of where to find yourself this morning because there's going to be four lessons I want to teach the book church. And these four lessons are because I want you, having believed the gospel, having understood it as life-changing, having poured your life out for it, if that indeed isn't true, your story, then I want you to know how as a church, not just as a Christian, as a church can advance the gospel. Because friends, Philippians is not written to the single Christian and a one-on-one. The Philippians is a letter written to all the Christians in this city at this church. Because unlike Miami, where we have multiple gospel preaching churches, in Philippi, there was one. This was it. Imagine, imagine living in a city where everybody who is accounted for for Christianity in the entire city is in this room. You would feel a sense of, man, all we have is each other. And though we didn't come from the same families, we are now in the same family, and we need to learn some lessons together if we intend to advance the gospel of the church. And I want to teach those lessons. Number one, the first lesson we're going to see from Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 14 is this. Remember, God orchestrates events in his people's lives to advance the gospel. That's the goal here, advancing the gospel. God orchestrates events in his people's lives to advance the gospel. Let's review it again, verse 12, Philippians 1. I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now what's taking place here? Well, let's make sure you understand the context. The context is something he first introduced earlier. Go up a few verses if you've got your Bible on your phone, your tablet, your old school printed version like this. I like to keep it real. Here I am. Verse 6, he says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. See, Paul writes these people not from the comfort of his Mediterranean five-star resort. This is sometimes how guys work in ministry, right? It's a sad reality. In fact, it was part of the reason why I just kind of got turned off by ministry and I prayed, Lord, please don't ever make me be a pastor. It's the Lord's called me language. You hear it all the time and it becomes increasingly suspicious, right? Because it's like the ace card in any conversation. 
pastors hear it all the time from people. You make a way at whacked out choice, but then you tell us what the phrase, oh, the Lord told me. You're like, oh, well, ace card there, right? Because what am I going to say as a pastor? Like, well, no, he didn't, because I told you. But pastors can sometimes do this, right? The Lord has told me, which is meaningful and right in some contexts, but other times it's just kind of a veneer to say, hey, I made a decision I really wanted. It's sometimes the Lord has called me has meant I made a decision to find a church that was more people or more money or a bigger platform to start my parachurch ministry that I'm really after. Because my local church was, well, too small time for me. I'm big time. I don't think my people realize that. Paul planted this church in Philippi. He loved these people like your pastors love you. Labored with them day in and day out. Did most ministry outside the eyes of all of them because it was so done privately that it didn't necessarily make its way around the church. But when he left them and the Lord called him, it wasn't to go to something bigger and better. In fact, where it ended up for him, prison. Now, when we think about prison ministry today, I've never seen a clipboard pastor on the church signing up for prison ministry was like, hey, would you like to go to jail for Jesus? You're like, you mean go visit people in jail for Jesus? I just want to be clear what I'm signing up for. Paul somehow got his name. He didn't put it on there. The Lord put it there. Got his name on the clipboard. You're going to go to jail for Jesus. But look at how he reads this. What has happened to me, verse 12, has really served to advance the gospel. Paul understands something. God often moves mysteriously in our life by how he orchestrates it, putting us in seasons and circumstances that we didn't choose, we didn't volunteer for, and we would prefer not to be in, but he puts us there in order to be a witness for the power of Christ in us. See, friends, right now, this morning, you might think, well, I, I, I'm not in prison, right? I mean, you're all sitting here in the freedom of this room, the air conditioning comfort of this room. I'm not in prison. But you know exactly what I'm talking about. A season, a situation, a trial has started perhaps even for some of you right now. And what's the first thing you've prayed? Probably like me. Lord, um, I don't know if you know this, but I'm over here in this situation. Could you point to me the exit door? Because I got to get out fast. I'm calling for some relief right now, right here. Let's get out of this baby. And God is actually wanting to teach us lessons that are sometimes hard to learn, but beautiful to see. Has really served to advance the gospel. Here's the reality. Sometimes God's commitment to his glory does not always equal our comfort. But that sometimes is a small print, if we're, admit, if we're honest, to the Lord. I give you my life. Just please understand, having given you my life, I trust you'll reward me with comfort. Right? I mean, we, we love, you maybe are tempted the same way I'm tempted, which is like, I, I want promised land Christianity. I don't want wilderness Christianity, right? I mean, I, I want pay-raise Christianity. I was hoping that by me giving my life to you, you would say, wow, you chose me? You want to be on my kickball team? Okay, now I, the Lord, I will give you health. 
I will give you wealth. I will give you relational success. I will make sure everything you touch turns to situational gold. For sometimes there's a seasons of great blessing. But what if God does other things in your life that brings you to a point of weakness where you're saying, Lord, I'm here only because you put me here. But because you put me here because you're the sovereign one, teach me what you want me to learn and show me what you want me to do right now, right here. You know what that's called? That's called big boy and big girl Christianity. That's what that's called. Now, the, the truth is, this is hard for anybody in this room right now. Because I want my children safe. I want my wife happy. I, I want my life healthy and strong and feeling a sense of physical vitality. Let's get real. Stepped out of a church in Indianapolis as a senior pastor to move here to Miami to plant a church. I am skiing in the wake of your pastor. He's four years into this endeavor. As I said, I am brand new. Do you know that one out of three church plants does not make it to its four-year anniversary? Congratulations, you guys made it. To God be the glory. Do you know that I'm not at my four-year anniversary? What if God brought me to Miami that I might die? But is obedience not actually life? No matter what it brings regarding human measured success? So oftentimes we want to put qualifiers on it. And Paul is saying here, no, no, because look at what's happening. What's happening in verse 14 is that most of the brothers, these other Christians, have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment. By my imprisonment. Uh, 400 years ago, in the country of England, uh, there's an old boy named John Bunyan. This guy is famous now to many, unknown to most others. He was a pastor like your pastor, Mucci. He was preaching, get done for Jesus in the city of London. And he was pastoring and the, the ruling governing authorities had a problem with him. And so they arrested him and put him in jail because they wanted to silence him. Here's the problem, though. They put him in jail. So what does he do? He does what every other pastor does. He keeps preaching. He does what Paul does. He keeps preaching. But here's the problem for the governing authorities. They put him in jail. He comes out on Sunday in the courtyard, and he's preaching now to all the inmates. But all his parishioners, the people from his church, like, yo, did you hear the word? Pastor Bunyan, you can still hear him. Let's go. So they come over to the prison. They sit outside the, the prison walls, and so they're hearing him. So basically, they just doubled his church size. You got the inmates in the walls. You got the free people out of the walls. And now he's just like, that's church growth. Not how most pastors pursue it, but nevertheless, it happened. They're like, well, that backfired on us. So they're like, you know what we're going to do? We're going to silence this guy once and for all. So they put him in the dungeon, lock him up, basically what we would call today solitary confinement. That'll silence him. No one can listen to him. You know what he does while he's in prison in solitary confinement? He writes a little-known book. It's now a well-known book called Pilgrim's Progress. That's been translated in over 200 languages. That is the second most printed English book in the history of publication, except the Bible. And it's a story of the gospel. 
read by millions and millions and millions of people. So what they intended to do was to silence him, actually gave him time to write something that would go far beyond not just those walls, but even his life for centuries to come, that today people are reading that book, even seeing movies about the recreation of that book, about the gospel. Paul understands this. God uses events to advance the gospel. Second lesson we want to learn here, verses 15 to 18, rejoice when the gospel is being preached while you pray for other churches and ministries. Rejoice when the gospel is being preached while you pray for other churches and ministries. Now, look with me here at verse 15 and following, because this gets a little crazy. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but of thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Now, here's what's happening in the scene as historians have best described it. Basically, there are other people who are doing ministry, kind of you know, traveling, itinerant, speaking ministry, teaching the gospel, and they're jealous of Paul's ministry. They're jealous of Paul's reputation. So what they do instead is, when Paul's in jail, they basically start to spin these lies. And here's how the lies go. They're basically like, uh, let's just be honest. Paul's doing ministry, we're doing ministry. Paul's in jail, we're not. Let me ask you a question. This isn't a hard question, just deductive reasoning. If God was so proud of Paul and didn't have issues in his life, and he was really so thankful for his ministry, why do you think God would put him in prison? But I'm not in prison. So who do you think the Lord is showing favor to and really proud of and wants to continue to get this word out there? So they were slandering Paul's reputation. They were talking trash out of him because of their envy and their desire for rivalry and how they would talk about Paul. Paul is hearing his reports, right? Like, you know, first century texting, except they're coming in person to talk to him like, yo, have you heard? And Paul's like, well, tell me what they're saying. He's like, well, here's what they're saying about you. No, 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 that's not, not what they say about me. What are they saying when they speak about Christ? Well, um, they're, they're telling that Jesus of Nazareth was the Son of God. Okay, unpack that some more for me. And he basically go on to say, Jesus is God's Son. He's not just any Jewish teacher, that he's actually God's Son. And that as God's son, he came and lived the perfect life that we otherwise should have lived, but we have never lived and can never live. And then he does the remarkable, amazing, he actually then dies on the death on the cross as a substitute. So that all those who would believe in him would be forgiven of their sins, and they would be credited with all his righteousness while he'd receive all of their punishment. And then he resurrects from the grave three days later. That's the gospel. Paul's like, are they preaching that when they preach Christ? He's like, yeah. He's like, man, praise God. But Paul, I don't know if you understand this, they're trash talking you. This is not setting you up well. People are now, who used to think well of you, are now thinking bad of you. Paul basically says, I do not care what people think about me. If they are hearing Christ and him crucified, I rejoice. Now friends, let's be clear. Paul is not rejoicing in their sinfulness. 
He is differentiating issues here. He is rejoicing in the gospel being preached. Why does this matter? Here's why this matters practically. It matters practically, and Brian said it really well. It matters practically because sometimes ministry, churches as a whole, or leaders themselves, can be very insecure and find our identity in our churches. So that if there's another church that God seems to be blessing, we're like, well, you know what? They're probably watering it down. They're just probably diluting it. That's the straight truth. Because honestly, right? I mean, if a lot of people are there, there's no way they could be there because they're tickling ears. They're just tickling ears. Cotton candy Christianity. It's happening. Y'all know, I'm, I'm, I'm reading your thoughts. Now, listen to me, just to be clear. I want to be clear what I'm saying, what I'm not saying. There are organizations that identify themselves as churches that do not preach the gospel. They do not preach the gospel. I just got to finish explaining to you. But because they call themselves churches, ignorant people go and think they're in Christianity and they're not. That's not what Paul's talking about. Those people are not preaching the gospel. He's not rejoicing in that. What Paul is talking about are people who preach the gospel, but maybe with mixed motives, right? Like maybe with a bit of insecurity, like, hey, you know, check us out, hey, and, and maybe, oh, well, you know, Moochie, or hey, you know, maybe Eric, whatever. He's, Paul's like, hey, don't worry about those people. I mean, pray for their health. Pray that God will help them grow up and mature up and, and man up and woman up. Pray that this will happen, but, but be rejoicing in the fact of preaching the gospel to sinners. Do you know within one mile radius of where we planted, one mile radius, just one mile. 20,000 people live. 20,000 people. Two mile radius, 85,000 people. Do you understand I could never leave one mile radius from where I am and have more ministry in my entire lifetime? But pastors like me could be so insecure, like, hey, I, I got Miami. You should go probably go to Broward. Like, are you going to like take on 3 million people up in Broward? What he's saying here is, listen, rejoice when the gospel is being preached and pray for those. Pray for the churches and ministries. You want to create a culture, I trust you are, where you are rejoicing in and loving gospel work in the city. Brian did it so sweetly and wonderfully this morning and how that looks and what that looks like. It takes us to our third lesson. Find your courage and confidence in Christ. Your courage and and confidence in Christ. Look at verses 19 and 26. For the sake of time, I will not read all of it because we've already heard all of it. The wonderful lady read it to us earlier this morning. I want to just highlight for you the points here to recognize. Paul says in verse 20, I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored, whether by life or by death. Paul is like weird except for Christianity, he's actually quite normal. Paul actually says here, it would be better, my desire, verse 23, is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Paul is not suicidal. Paul is committed to the worship of the Lord without distraction or division. And he knows the opportunity for that to be most purely expressed is in heaven with Christ. Oh, when there's no more suffering and no more pain. 
full communion and fellowship with the Savior. And that's exactly what he's saying he wishes he could do. And yet, look at what he says. He says later on in verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue as well for your progress and joy in the faith. Paul's desire to be present with people is for the sake of other people. Now, just, just check that right now practically yourself this morning. Because this would be like a, a pretty good like action step, like step one. Step one is, is it your desire to be present here this morning in order to minister to other people present here? I'm not saying to not come with the expectation to be ministered to, singing, praying, preaching. I'm not saying having no, not those expectations. I'm talking about the desire to say, I want to be present in life in order to serve others. Woo! That's a good, helpful audit. Right? Because sometimes ideas like it happens, what we call retirement Christianity. Retirement Christianity is, I can't wait till I have no more responsibility so I can just do whatever I want. Right? Just do whatever I want. I can just kind of roll wherever I want, go wherever I want, do whatever I want. And Bible is basically saying, yeah, that's, that's fair. What do you want? What do you want? Paul says, I want to be present. I want to be alive for the good of others, for serving of others, because that's how I serve the Lord. So think about that. A desire for life is a desire to serve others for the honor of Christ. And it doesn't matter the circumstances. He, he could die. That, that's the reality. The context here is Paul does not know if he's going to get out of prison. He could die. But there's, there's a confidence here he thinks he's going to. So then look into the fourth lesson in verse 27. This fourth lesson, he says, you're each responsible for this church's unity. Look at verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. What's he talking about? He's talking about Christian unity, the very thing that Jesus prayed for in John 17. See, a lot of times people can think in churches, Christian unity is accomplished by Christian leaders. Right? How is it accomplished by Christian leaders? By the leaders accommodating all of the desires of the Christian people. It's called constituency Christianity. If you can accommodate enough constituencies, when they want services to start, what songs they want to sing, how they want things to go, where they want groups to meet, what they want it to look like, then, then you can kind of accommodate people and that will kind of preserve the unity. And if we have kind of a, a few rogue people, well, let's go after them and let's say, hey, what, what, what's wrong? What, what do you like? Well, I don't really like this. Well, we can maybe address that. Well, what Philippians is saying here from Paul's writing is that actually he wants to know that even if he's not present with them, these people have rolled up their sleeves and have gotten responsible, each of them and every one of them, for unity. But notice where the unity is found and where it's not found. One mind, one spirit, striving side by side. This idea of striving is this idea of working hard. Like it actually costs you something. You actually get some sweat on your brow. But side by side what? For the faith of what? Somebody say it. It's, it's okay. I'm not going to yell at you if you get it wrong. I'm not interacting with you. I know. But I want them to feel like you're part of the sermon. 
Strive by side for the faith of the? All right. So a couple of you got your Bibles. That's cool. Others of you are like, I don't know. I don't have my Bible. So let's all do this together. The answer is the gospel. Okay? So it's an open book quiz. So we'll try it again. These people are trying to strive side by side for the faith of the? All right, now, see, y'all awake, right? When I'm about to land the plane. Thanks a lot for that. Their unity is in the gospel. Not in their socioeconomics, how much money they get paid, not in where they live, not in their ethnicity, not in what language they speak, not in what music they listen to. It's in the gospel. Loving something more than people that look like you in the mirror. That's the power of the gospel. He says, may that be your reputation and how you are working for this. My wife and I, for years, prior to moving back here, we would return to South Florida for a little marriage retreat. It's been our practice every year for the last 23 years to do a marriage retreat, a little as much money as we would have at the time, saving up money to do this. And we'd come back here to South Florida because we had contacts of places we couldn't stay and stuff. And so March of 2017, I brought my wife back here before we'd even moved here, just again praying about moving back here. And... Uh, on this day in March, we took some time and uh, I did a surprise for her. I took her to the church that we got married in and I talked to the pastor, one of the pastors at a time and said, hey, can we do a special ceremony? I'd love to renew my vows with my wife. I'd love to renew my vows. Now, it wasn't our anniversary. We had been married at that point 20 months, or excuse me, 20 years, six months and 19 days. That was enough for me. It was also my wife's birthday. That felt like it was enough as well. And so I surprised her and brought her to the church and we had a photographer and the whole deal and had a sweet special ceremony just renewing our vows. Now, some of you might be wondering, why did you do that? Were you guys having trouble in marriage? No, we, we've had our problems in marriage, of course. Like every couple with two sinners live together. But we did this because I wanted my wife to say, listen, what I said 20-something years ago, I still mean today. I love you and I'm committed to you through sickness and in health, through richer for poor, through success and maybe failure, I'm committed to you. Friends, this morning it might be time for some of you to renew your vows to the Lord. Not because maybe there's anything wrong with your walk with Christ, but because you've read the biography of a man sitting in a prison cell who just taught all of us a lesson to a church that we could all learn from of what it means to spend your life desiring to advance the gospel in hospital waiting rooms or on couples' vacations. To advance the gospel in times of great friendliness or in times of great challenge. And the question is today, what will you choose? Who will you live for? After I pray, we'll have a time with the Lord's Supper where this points up the point of decision for you and your chance to renew your vows on light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to worship. We're thankful, Lord, that our worship of you is not because of any one particular thing we've done, but because of everything that Christ himself has done. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters here this morning. With the limited time, Lord, I pray that their hearts have been arrested, their consciences have been held captive, 
that Christ is king over their desires, their life, in sickness and in health, in loneliness and in great relational prosperity. God, I pray for your mercy upon anybody who still today does not know the kindness of you in Christ, that today they would give their life to Christ, surrendering all, like that man who poured the water out, that they would give all of their life to you, believing they will get back more than they could ever imagine. Eternal life, hope and peace and joy in Christ. May this be true this morning for many. Amen.